0: Hello and welcome to episode 4 of The Theologian's Table. My name is Tim and I am your host. I'm very excited to uh, be coming back to you. This episode kicks off a series called The Dark Mirror, but you won't find out why it's called that until episode 6. I'm also... You can have an alternative title for this series, um, which you could probably call... Prepare to be Mildly Offended. That might be a good alternative title. So, I'd like you to think that you're taking an Intro to Christian Theology course, but at someone's dining room table. It's my table, so to speak, but my role is to serve you and offer as much as I can on a subject in about 30 to 45 minutes. Also, if you're looking at your device and you see episodes with a letter A next to them, That means they were episodes from my old podcast. Someday I won't need to say that anymore. If you like this podcast and you want to support it, uh, please feel free to hop on over to the Patreon page and become a patron. So I've totally revamped the Patreon page just to have one tier, which I call the anchor tier. After the Patreon uh, people and the government take their dues, it would average out to be about five bucks a month on my end. Five dollars. And believe it or not, it goes a long way. Uh, there are, of course, a lot of perks that go along with your with your subscription or your monthly pledge. Um, and you can find uh, the link in the description of this episode. But you know what? Times are tough. Uh, If you don't want to or can't become a patron, it would be really helpful if you could just rate this podcast, if you're listening to it on a platform that allows you to do that. And you can also share this podcast on your local media, uh, your local media, your social media account, whether you love it or hate it or just like it only a teensy little bit. All right, so let's get on with the show. In this episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite things, ancient history. So, Ancient history has always fascinated me since I was incredibly young, maybe about five years old, thanks to movies like the original Clash of the Titans, and even movies like the Indiana Jones trilogy. But I want to talk about early Christianity from the time of Christ to about early 5th century. So this is going to sound a little harsh, but outside of the academy, and sometimes even inside of it, we don't do history well. And I'm not just talking about with the church, but the general public as well. And in both of the dominant ideological spheres of the United States, we're seeing how that lack of doing history well is playing out. With the church, though, which is about two millennia old, we could be a beacon of engaging with the past. But we sometimes fall into the same traps, especially here in the United States, that the general public does. There, are, uh, there has been a large amount of theology and belief that has been passed over, distorted, or forgotten, which has led to a lot of foolishness and a lot of foolish beliefs in Christianity especially within the last 150 years. In fact, a lot of what I try to fit into this episode might not be too easy to hear. And even though I want to say that what I'm trying to do in this episode is coming from a place inside of me that's out of a desire to love and to teach, it's also coming out of a place of frustration. In order to look at the past, in order to understand history, there are a few things that need to be addressed. The first is that there is a difference in how we define the past and how we define history. The past is what actually happened, everything that happened as it happened. And history is an interpretation of the past. In fact, History gets talked about or explained in a context or a bias. So things get left out consciously or subconsciously. We just do that as humans. So history isn't as full as the actual past. Another thing, and this is according to theologian Rowan Williams, who I definitely agree with, he says, "...we don't have a single grid for history." We construct it when we want to resolve certain problems about who we are now. So think about that for a minute. We don't and shouldn't claim to have an absolute method of how to conduct history. But that's exactly what we do these days. We try to wrap our narratives around history and the past instead of seeing uh, what the past can offer our narratives in context. And when we try to fit the past and history into our narratives, people try to tame awkward and uncomfortable facts or ignore them. Other facts are placed at center stage in ways that might have greatly surprised some of the original people involved. Some people might refer to that as something called revisionist history which is a very buzzy phrase. The past, though, is a strange place, and we need to get comfortable with that strangeness if we're going to see what the past can say about us. We also need to understand that the people in the past, they were human, just as you and I are human. And though we've come a long way technologically, that doesn't mean we're more superior Uh, whether morally, ethically, or philosophically. In fact, sometimes you can make a case for the opposite. So what we need to do when we're doing history is to try to do as much justice as possible to what happened in the past, which means looking at the past humbly. And if you're a Christian, looking at it in the light that is consistent with who God is. And with the knowledge that we will never fully know All that has happened in the past. And if you do, good for you. (laughs) Also, I need to offer a correction from one of my previous episodes. I don't remember if it was the first or second episode in the Academy versus the Church, but I mentioned that the German philosopher Hegel said that previous thoughts and ideas of the past uh, were primitive and useless. I have since learned that it that is simply untrue, but it was a popular view in his in his day. He fought against that notion though and in fact he argued that we must engage with the ideas of the past to compensate for the blind spots of the present. It's just that um, a lot of his writing was very dense and I think some people, misinterpret what he says based on that. And it, it's also true, though, I think that some of his theology did lead to the, to the support of world wars. So anyway, I thought that that was a correction that was important to include because it fits with this discussion. Earlier, I mentioned that uh, we don't do history well, and there's been a large disservice done to the first 500 years of the Church, especially after the Apostles. One of the themes that suffers from this is the area of authority and how Christians respond to it. To be fair, this is something that Christians have struggled with for longer than the U.S. has been around, but it has been part of cultures and countries which have a profound sense of loyalty to itself, and where the Christian faith has been interwoven with that loyalist attitude. The common phrase for this is, again, very buzzy, but we gotta name it, and that name is Christian nationalism. So don't tune me out yet, because I'm going somewhere with it. Christian nationalism, it's easy to see when politicians are trying to get the conservative evangelical vote, and then appeal to how the founding fathers of the United States uh, design the country with biblical principles in mind. But then, when one of these people uh, are in office then, they, and then they act uncharacteristically Christian, or they promote a policy that, uh, and policies that further marginalizes the already marginalized, what do we get told? We get told by the same religious leaders that supported the candidate that we have to respect the office, right? You have to respect their office. And then they usually accompany that statement with Romans 13, 1 through 7. So if you're not familiar with that, pause this. Go read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Okay. If you're back, before you call me a libtard, uh, the left is just as guilty as the right. I've seen the same hermeneutical gymnastics by the religious left and that's because Christian nationalism is more about pushing secular agendas that are sprinkled with biblical themes here and there so that when when so that Romans passage is a way to keep Christians in line. But what do we do about it and what does it have to do with early Christianity? If you have your Bible near you, or a phone with a Bible app, go to 1 Corinthians 27-31 through with me. I'll be reading out of the NRSV translation. And it starts, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I love that part where it says, uh, so that no one might boast in the presence of God, because God is present everywhere all the time. Anyways, the first Christians saw themselves as resident aliens. The Greek word is perokoi, and they, the roots of their citizenship were in a different context than the actual cities and lands that they lived in. Christians in the late first century were sometimes seen as fanatics and rootless. And for this reason, uh, that was potentially dangerous for the empire. But in reality, for Christians, being a good citizen did not equal being a good Christian, especially when the practices of the empire represented the opposite of Christ. In Paul's eyes, it would be Christianity that would bring shame upon the empire for simply just being Christ in the world. But I'm not going to appeal to just one passage. Uh, There is a song of Mary's in Luke 1, commonly called the Magnificat, where verses 51 through 53 say, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. But what does that actually look like? We can go to Acts chapter 4 for the answer, I think. After Peter and John had healed a a, a crippled man so that he could walk, they started preaching about Jesus in the temple courts. In fact, it was the portico of Solomon. And they were eventually arrested. Uh, The next day, they were brought before the council of high priests and asked. uh, they asked the two apostles how they were able to heal the man. The Bible says next that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit before he spoke. And then he addresses them in a, in a very important way. He says, rulers of the people and elders. And then he says in a couple verses down in the passage that the man was healed by the power of Jesus, whom, wait for it, you had crucified. Peter was shaming those in power. And a little further down, it says that the high priest knew Peter and John were ordinary men, but the, the priests were silent because what they did for the healed man was very evident, and they knew they couldn't do anything else about it because they were afraid of the public's positive response to Peter and John. And then, yes, there's more, We have the story of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, who was a person that the twelve disciples chose to uh, make sure all the widows were being treated fairly and getting the stuff that they needed to survive while they, the twelve apostles, or the twelve disciples, did the business of spreading the gospel and uh, devoting their life to prayer. Uh, What I love about Stephen's story here is that the Bible says he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Remember what Paul says about wisdom in that 1 Corinthians passage, that the wisdom of God looks foolish to those who are in power. This will be important in a moment. But Stephen, who was a deacon, he was just a person who was supposed to make sure that the widows were being fed, uh, he was also going around working all these wonders, and like Peter and John, they got him arrested. But when they got Stephen in front of the in front of the council, they noticed he had this certain air and certain look about him, and it, it says that his face was like that of an angel. And then they asked him about uh, all of these trumped up charges against him. And uh, in response, Stephen gave this rip-roaring speech that went through the history of Israel, ending with the note that whenever God raised up a prophet to correct the course of Israel, the ruling class persecuted and killed those prophets. And then Stephen accused them of being no different and doing the exact same thing now. And guess what? They killed Stephen for saying that. So what I'm asking is, how does Peter's, John's, and Stephen's defiance towards the high priest fit into the context of Romans 13, 1-7? You could make the argument that they were doing so because they were continuing the work of Jesus, who had exposed the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But that phrase, rulers of the people, Well, it makes me think otherwise. Let's say I give into that argument, though. How does the Christian response to the ruling powers look in history after the events of the Bible? So one of the ways this played out in the early church from about sometimes the late 1st century to the early 4th century especially was through martyrdom. When we talk about the martyrs, we usually lift them up and say they died because they wouldn't recant their faith. And for many that's true, but there are more specific reasons why they wouldn't recant. And it has to do with the fact that Christians wouldn't blend their faith with the practices of the Roman Empire. Sometimes in resistance to the emperor worship, but also in relation to, believe it or not, the institution of marriage. Many women who converted to Christianity and happened to be part of elite families were persecuted and martyred, choosing to remain a virgin, rather getting married, because it would allow them to have that uh, life devoted to Christ. They were virgins and they saw themselves as the brides of Christ. To get a better handle on this though, it's important to have a, a good understanding about marriage in the uh, Greco-Roman world, especially the Roman Empire. You know, today we're kind of bogged down by romantic tales of love that lead to marriage in in these elite families and in in royalty. Or at least the public is and 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 romance novels existed in the ancient world too. But marriage then in the Roman Empire was seen as a civic and patriotic institution that promoted the health of the empire. In fact, the state oversaw marriages in the elite families, making sure that the marriages bestowed the honor upon men. But marriage also needed to be portrayed as a happy one because it symbolized the harmony between those elite families in the region, who were the cultural and political leaders of that area. Women of that time did not have very many rights, if any at all, and so they had to go into these marriages even if they might not like the guy. But they had the patriotic obligation to do so. Along comes Christianity, and in the second century, Christianity promoted virginity and the ascetic lifestyle, and even celibacy within marriage. Eh. Some of those teachings had to do with them, with the fact that, yes, some Christians uh, were expecting Christ to return within their lifetime, and Jesus had taught that marriage, in the way that it exists on earth, won't exist in, in the age to come. Uh, the apostles taught, and I, I want to say that it was Paul, thought that it, it was a distraction in the devotion to Christ, and when he teaches on self-control, he's he's teaching about celibacy. Additionally, salvation during that time, uh, not in the Christian view, but salvation during that time was taught that through having children and continuing the genealogy, that determined the outcome of the future. But those. Christians preaching the gospel of Christ taught that the resurrection of Christ uh, is what determines the future. And that was something that reoriented everything, uh, which I'll get into uh, in the uh, episode six. What this did was it did offer an out for a, a woman, if you want a more simplistic view, who is facing uh, being given away in marriage. Uh, I wasn't there at the time, so I don't think it was the motivating factor per se. I think the church directly addressing second-class citizens like women and slaves was more of a, a motivating factor. But I could see the allure of you know wanting an out from a marriage you don't want to go into. Uh, you can imagine then the threat this teaching had towards the stability of the empire's future. And early Christian literature has some unique stories reflecting this issue. One of the most influential stories back then was called The Acts of Paul and Thecla, which is a non-canonical writing. Uh, It mainly centers around Paul and a wealthy young woman named Thecla who was engaged to be married. When Thecla converts to Christianity after hearing Paul preach, she completely adopts an ascetic lifestyle, which includes giving up the chance to be married. This causes problems with her family, and her mom, her mother, her own mother, calls for her death. So the governor orders for her to be burned at the stake, Thecla, uh, and they march her naked, to the pyre in the middle of the theater but the story likens her to Stephen and with his angelic countenance and the governor notices how powerful she seems in this moment and she doesn't burn because a thunderstorm rolls in and puts out the flame it also sends down hail killing some of the people in the, in the, in the audience later on uh, in the story, she faces almost the same situation, having left her former city but coming to a new one uh, where a politician notices how beautiful she is and proposes marriage to her. And uh, she says no. So they throw her to the beasts in the theater, in the arena. This time, though, something is different. Something has changed the people watching in the arena are in the arena are angry at what's happening they're ashamed by the fact that she's naked again and they abstain from wanting to hum- humiliate her that's the purpose of bringing her in their naked is so that she can be humiliated and they really voice how uh, angry and annoyed they are that she's going through this and the women are really angry, and they start throwing things like herbs and and spices to distract and confuse the animals in the arena with her. There had been also a woman uh, taking care of Thecla while she was under house arrest, waiting to be uh, thrown into this arena, and and they bonded, and that woman started treating Thecla like her own daughter. While she was there in the audience, and uh, near the governor, and she faints. And that throws the governor into a panic because she's, she's related to the emperor. So the governor stops everything and then asks Thecla how she was able to survive all this. And she simply says, I am a slave of the living God. And remember the Corinthians passage. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. The passage, it sounds somewhat anarchist, but the implication is to bring a healing to those who have suffered from the hands of those in power and reorient anything thing in a matter that portrays the goodness of God. The change in attitude of the people watching her uh, being persecuted signified the importance of this passage. As a woman, she was already a second-class citizen, but as a prisoner thrown into the arena to be torn apart by wild animals, she was truly seen as weak, low, and despised by the ruling authorities. The bond uh, with the woman that she made, the woman that treated Thecla like her own daughter, also showed that in Christianity, especially for the early Christians, it wasn't flesh that made you family or genealogy. It was by the blood of Christ that makes you family. There are a lot of fantastical elements to her story, but both early Christian men and women believed that she was a person to imitate. There are other stories like this, such as Perpetua and Felicity, which they have actual recorded dates of martyrdom. Thecla, hers is a a different story, but uh, the story of Perpetua really goes into the difficult family dynamics when a woman refuses to marry because of her faith, especially what it means for her father, and also what it means for her to give up her nursing infant. And there are these odd sections of the story where these two are celebrated by becoming like men in their suffering, which means they had the type of gladiatorial courage that male gladiators were associated with. This meant that these women transcended what people then typically thought what a woman should be and and could be. So it was a compliment, really. It was a high compliment. Uh, What the female martyr's witness did was that it sharpened the church's critique of the Roman family values and that the gospel was so strong, the church could argue that by its power, even a weak female was made stronger than the strongest warrior. It's weird to me, it's weird to me now that we have these legalistic segments of Christianity that place so much emphasis on making sure that women are married. It's weird and sad that male Christian leaders are telling uh, women to have children so that they can outbreed the enemy, especially uh, when the New Testament teaches that having children isn't what ensures the future of the faith. It's the resurrection. And yes, that is something that was actually said to a woman. But it's almost like the people saying that never left the empire. Don't get me wrong. I love family. I have a wife and I have four children. So we like family. But I'm just speaking towards these uh, legalistic and, uh, you know, maybe fundamentalist sections of Christianity where a woman is only good for being a wife and a mother. Uh, It makes me think, like I said, that uh, those people never left the empire. My question is then how does the defiance of these women martyrs along with the other martyrs who refuse to accommodate the practices of the empire, knowingly going against governing authorities, how does that fit with Romans thirteen one through seven. I mean, these rulers, as Romans thirteen one through two says, they're given authority by God, and those who resist resist them, resist God. And what about Peter and John? The Bible said that they addressed the rulers of the people. Obviously, uh, those rulers were granted authority by God. But what about Jesus, who did it all the time? Well, was he uh resisting himself? My point is is this: we have accepted a shallow reading of Romans thirteen one through seven that does not mesh with the rest of the New Testament. Republican, Democrat, socialist, and libertarian those are all man-made concepts, and they are not indicative of the kingdom of God. and at any time any of those parties or any other political party can and most likely will promote policies and ideas that are contrary to a life in Christ. So tell me, what are we going to do when we come across economic systems and policies that keep the poor poor? Uh, What are we going to do when uh, we have racist ideologies that have been codified into law? What are we going to do when we come across... Organizations that profit off of the sexual exploitation of children when the government is just wringing their hands. You know, human trafficking is bad enough, but 25% of that are are kids. So as long as you are seeking the guidance of of the Holy Spirit and, and wisdom who calls us to walk after Christ, who is the one that came to set the captives free, We have the biblical right to resist, to confront, and to call out, especially in a country where authority is supposed to be derived from the consent of the governed. That's in the Declaration of Independence. We have the biblical right as well as a right that is supposed to be fundamental to the foundation of this country to say that something is not okay. Do not settle for some shallow interpretation of Scripture designed to keep you in line with some agenda. And the reason I I give the caveat that you need to seek guidance of the Holy Spirit and to have wisdom is because your conscience isn't enough on its own uh, to accomplish what God has called you to do or called us to do. Conscience is most of the time a projection of the ego, when we see something that is going on in the world that is the epitome of Antichrist, or we hear something from God that is spoken to our heart, well, what op, what often happens is that our hearts answer to our conscience. But our, our conscience answers to culture because it's our culture that shapes our conscience. So if we're not If we're not sanctified in approaching what God has called us to do, we end up distorting what God has laid on our hearts. And so what do we see from movements that strictly just go based off their conscience and they don't sanctify their call? Well, we see them become self-destructive and the people who had promoted the movement start to turn on one another and they eat their own. And we also see them adopt tactics or morals of whoever was supposedly oppressing them in the first place. The historical church even did this when they believed that they could be the authority of God on earth, who eventually started persecuting others through torture, such as in the uh, Spanish Inquisition. Uh, And, you know, there was the violence between Protestants and Catholics during the Reformation era. And even the suppression of science just before the Enlightenment era. Uh, A rights movement or a movement in Christianity cannot survive like that and represent God well. You know, Jesus says that the Gentiles used their authority to lord it over you, but it's not supposed to be like that with you. It's not supposed to be like that with Christians. That's why when we renew our minds in Christ, our conscience is transformed. And instead of us leading the resistance, we realize it's God leading and we are to obediently follow, seeking him the whole time. I'll give one last example of why Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 1 and the verses in Mary's are so important. For for Paul... For his case, Paul wrote those words because he experienced those verses firsthand happening to him. Let's go to Ephesians 3. I think it starts uh, in 4. Uh, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he saw himself blameless when he believed he was operating under under the law of Paul. So basically, Paul's conscience was formed by his education, his thoughts of what true religion and zeal were, and that the righteousness was to be gained through keeping the people of God pure in, in a certain way. He saw Christianity as an aberration, an an abomination, or a spot on Israel. So he believed he was doing the righteous work of God by appointing all of the persecution against Christians in Jerusalem. And then he went on the road to Damascus. And you know what happened there. Uh, Christ, uh, Christ appeared in a blinding light, threw Paul down to the ground, He was blinded. And Jesus asked him, he asked Paul, Why do you persecute me? Which is a great tie into Matthew 25, 40, when Jesus says, What was done to the least of these was done to me. So Paul's world, his conscience, and his belief system in that moment were shattered. He was a strong person who was shamed by the power of Christ, which he saw as weak before. It's because he had never encountered Jesus. He was, so Paul was powerful, but he was brought to nothing. And he couldn't even bring himself to eat or drink for three days. And he had to be led by the hand the rest of the way to Damascus. What's also interesting to me is that he experienced much of the same violent persecution in serving Christ that he used to inflict onto others. But even with all that, he still did very many things for Christianity. Even though he was high up and he was brought crashing down, there was still a healing that took place and that there was a reorientation in Paul's life that furthered the good news of God. So I'm trying to offer a compelling case that we need to go beyond these Plain readings of Scripture, because the plain readings of Scripture that they can often kill our witness if we just sit there on the surface, comfortable, and serving someone else's agenda that isn't Jesus's uh, gospel. So that that's that's what I was trying to do, and that's gonna do it for this episode. I want to give you my sources. I try to do that every episode, so. One of them is a book called Christian Women in the Patristic World, and that's by Amy Brown Hughes and Lynn Kohick. And then I've got Why Study the Past uh, by Rowan Williams. And then some lecture notes. I really feel like I can do something with these notes. Um, in the next episode, which will hopefully be coming out in two weeks, I'm going to be talking about the influential women of the early church, and I'll go into a little bit more about the martyrs, but also women who had very huge influence on orthodox theology of the historical church and why that's important today. And in the last, or in episode six, uh, I'll be talking about the end times and what impact that has on doing history well. But until then... Until you hear from me next, God bless and keep learning. Thank you.